0: written by Henry Offley Wakeman and published in 1897. This book explores the rise of France during the years 1598 and 1715. My name is Teddy, and I am to help people everywhere get a good night's rest. Sleep is so important, and my mission is to help you get the rest that you need. The podcast is designed to play in the background while you slowly fall asleep. Thank you to everyone who shared their words of gratitude with me during the week. Firstly, a massive thank you to new supporters on Patreon, Donna Edmonds and Olive Norman. Thank you for both becoming patrons and providing a monthly financial contribution to the podcast. My goal is to keep this podcast free to allow access for everyone who needs it, and it's support from listeners like yourself via Patreon that allows me to keep bringing out episodes for those who need them. To audible listeners who took the time to leave a review, Barry Ray Dirksen, I'm glad you're sleeping better. And to the two anonymous users who left reviews on Australia's Audible site, respectively, you said the podcast works like a charm and that it is hypnotic. Thank you both. To all Spotify listeners who continue to respond to the Q&A within the Spotify app, I really appreciate hearing from you, and thank you for your comments. If you're out there and you find the podcast beneficial, I do have one small favor to ask. Please share the podcast with a friend and leave a review in your podcast app. One sentence really helps out, and it doesn't really take that long. If you would like, you can always become a patron or sponsor at boytosleep.com. You're also able to say hello there, and you can find me on Instagram, at boytosleep. In the meantime, lie back, relax, and enjoy the readings. The Academy of France, 1598-1715 to 1715. Preface. I have not attempted in the following pages to write the history of Europe in the 17th century in detail. The chronicle of events can be found without difficulty in many other works. I have therefore endeavored, as far as possible, to fix attention upon those events only which had permanent results and upon those persons only, whose life and character profoundly influenced those results. Other events and other persons I have merely referred to in a passing, all left out of account altogether, such as for instance the history of Portugal and the Papacy, the internal affairs of Spain, Italy and Russia, Following out this line of thought, I have naturally found in the development of France the central fact of the period, which gives unity to the whole. Round that development, and in relation to it, most of the other nations of Europe fall into their appropriate positions, and play their parts in the drama of the world's progress. Such a method of reading the history of a complicated period may of course be open to objection from the point of view of absolute historical truth. The effort to give unity to a period of history may easily fall into the inaccuracy of exaggeration. The picture may become a caricature or so strong a light may be shed on one part as to throw the rest into disproportionate gloom. It would be presumptuous in me to claim that I have avoided such dangers. All that I can say is that they have been present to my mind continually, as I was writing, and that I have been emboldened to face them both by the fact that the history of the 17th century lends itself in a very marked way to a such treatment, and by the conviction that it is far more important to the training of the human mind, and to the true interests of historical truth, that a beginner should learn the place which a period occupies in the story of the world that have an accurate knowledge to the smaller details of its history. To know the meaning and results of the counter-reformation is some education. To know the official and personal names of the popes, none at all. With regard to the spelling of names, I have endeavoured to follow what I humbly conceive to be the only reasonable and consistent rule, that of custom. It seems to me to be as pedantic to write Henri, Karl, or Friedrich as it is admitted to be to write Wien or Napoli and inconsistent on any theory except that of the law of custom to write anything else but with regard to some names custom permits more than one form of spelling it is as customary to write Trier as Treves or Mines as Mayence these cases mainly arise with reference to names of places which are situated on border lands, and are spelt sometimes according to one language, and sometimes according to another. In these cases, I have followed the language of the nation which was dominant in the period of which I treat, and accordingly write Alsace, Lorraine, Basel, Culm. Saluzzo, etc. The use of an historical atlas is presumed without. Henry Offley Wakeman Chapter 1 Europe at the beginning of the 17th century The 17th century is the period when Europe, shattered in its political and religious ideas by the Reformation Reconstructed its political system upon the principle of territorialism under the rule of absolute monarchs. It opens with Henry VI. It closes with Peter the Great. It reaches its climax in Louis Fourteenth and the Great Elector. It is therefore the century in which the principal European states took the form. ...and acquired the position in Europe, which they have held more or less up to the present time. A century in which France takes the lead in European affairs... ...and enters on a course of embittered rivalry with Germany... ...in which England assumes a position of first importance in the affairs of Europe... ...in which the Emperor ousted from all effective control over German politics finds the true centre of his power on the Danube, in which Prussia becomes the dominant state in North Germany, in which Russia begins to drive in the Turkish outposts on the Pruth and the Euxine, a century in short, which saw the birth of the Franco-German question and of the Eastern question, cannot be said to be deficient in modern interest. The map of Europe at the close of the 17th century shows the same great divisions as it does at the close of the 19th century, with the notable exception of Italy. Prussia and Russia have grown bigger. France and Turkey have grown smaller. The empire has become definitely Austrian, but in all its main divisions, the political map of Europe is practically unchanged. The states which were formed in the general reconstruction of Europe after the religious wars of the 16th century are the states of which modern Europe is now composed. Great nations are apt to change their forms of internal government much more often than they do their political boundaries and influence. But it is a remarkable thing that with the great exception of France, the principal European states possess at the present time, not only a similar political position, but a similar form of government to that which they possessed at the close of the 17th century. In spite of the wave of revolutionary principles which flowed out from France over Europe at the end of the 18th century, the principal states of Europe at the present time are in all essentials absolute monarchies, and these monarchies are as absolute now as they were then, with the two exceptions of Italy, which did not then exist and France, which is now a republic, but has been everything in turn, and nothing long. The formation of the modern European states system is therefore the main element of continuous interest and importance in the history of the 17th century. That is to say, the acquisition by the chief European states of the boundaries which they have since substantially retained, the adoption by them of the form of government to which they have since adhered, and the assumption by them, relatively to the other states, of a position and influence in the affairs of Europe, which they have since enjoyed. The 16th century saw the final dismemberment of medieval Europe, The 17th saw its Reconstruction in the modern form in which we now know it. Of the European nations which were profoundly affected by the Reformation, France was the first to emerge from the conflict. French Calvinism differed from the South German type by being more distinctly political in its objects and the leaders of the French Catholics, especially the ambitious chiefs of the House of Guise, had quite as keen a desire for their own aggrandisement as they had for the supremacy of their religion. The religious wars in France soon became mainly faction fights among the nobles for political objects, in which personal rivalry was embittered by religious division. And all honest and law-abiding citizens, that sturdy middle-class element which has always formed the backbone of the French nation, soon longed for the strong hand which should, at any rate, keep faction quiet. The authority of the crown had ever been in France the sole guarantee of order and of progress. Under the weak princes of the House of Valois, that guarantee ceased to exist. Shifty, irresolute, inconsistent, they preferred the arts of the intriguer to the policy of the statesman the poniard of the assassin to the sword of the soldier, and when Henry III, the murderer of the Duke of Guise, in his turn then fell murdered by the dagger of the monk of Clement, France drew a long sigh of relief. Like England after Bosworth Fields, France, after Ivory, was ready to throw herself at the feet of a conqueror, who was strong enough to ensure peace and suppress faction. The House of Bourbon ascended the French throne upon the same unwritten conditions as the House of Tudor ascended the English throne. It was to rule because it knew how to rule, and the conditions of its rule were to be internal peace and national consolidation. But the task before the Bourbon was far more difficult than that which absorbed all the energies of the first Tudor. He had no machinery in his hand which he could use to veil the arbitrariness of his action or to guide public opinion. Parliament in England had often been the terror of a weak king. The Tudors soon made it the tool of a strong king. In France, Henry had to rely openly upon the powers of the crown and upon military force. It is true that the states-general still existed, though they were seldom summoned, but their constitution and traditions rendered them unfit to play the part of an English parliament. They met in three houses, representing the clergy, the nobility, and the commonalty. The latter house, the tiers etat as it was called, being usually about as large as the other two put together, but instead of there being a political division running through the three estates of those for the policy of the crown and those against it, as was usually the case in England, the tendency in France was always for the two privileged houses to coalesce against the tiers état. The crown had therefore only to balance one against the other and leave them to entangle themselves in mutual rivalries in order to gain the victory. In the long history of the English Parliament, it is very rare to find serious questions raised between the two Houses. Nobles and Commons have as a rule acted together for weal or for woe in attacking or supporting the policy of the Crown. The unity of Parliament has been its most significant feature. In France it has been quite otherwise. Mutual jealousy and social rivalry played their part with such effect that they destroyed the political usefulness of the states-general. Unable to act together, they could not extort from the crown either the power over the purse or the right of legislation, which were the two effective checks upon the king's prerogative exercised by the English Parliament. All they could do was to present a list of grievances and ask for a remedy. They had no power, whatever, of compelling a favourable answer, much less of giving effect to it. The procedure was for each estate to draw up its own list of those matters which it wished to press upon the attention of the Crown. When the lists were completed, they were formally presented to the king, and a formal answer of acceptance or rejection was expected from him. But as the estates separated, directly the answer was given. The crown was apt not to be overprompt in fulfilling its promises. As a constitutional check upon misgovernment, The States General in France were therefore of little use. That function, as far as it was discharged at all, had by accident devolved upon the Parliament of Paris. The Parliament was in its origin nothing more than a court of law which sat at Paris to administer justice between the king and his subjects, and between subject... And subject. In course of time, it grew into a corporation of lawyers and judges, not altogether unlike our inns of court in England, amalgamated into one, having just the kind of political influence which a close and learned corporation, whose business it was to make by judicial decision a great deal of the law of the country, could not fail to have. In one point indeed, the Parliament had almost established a definite right. As the highest court of the realm, its duty was to register the edicts of the king, a duty which was easily turned into a right to refuse to register them, if it so willed. Thus, the Parliament claimed an indirect veto upon the royal legislation. It is true that the King could always override the refusal of the Parliament to register an edict by coming in person to its session and holding what was called a lit to justice. But this was a proceeding which involved a good deal of inconvenience and was not unlikely to excite tumults. It would not therefore be resorted to accept on critical occasions. So completely had the constitution of France become in its structure despotic, that there was absolutely no constitutional means of exercising control over the King's will than this very doubtful right of the Parliament of Paris to refuse the King's edict. And if there was no constitutional check upon the King's will, there was also no machinery which the King could utilise in order to associate himself with his people in the task of government. He stood on a pedestal by himself in terrible isolation Surrounded by his courtiers, faced by the nobility, backed by his army, unable to know his people's wants, and unable to help them know their own. But this was not all. Henry the Fourth had to encounter open enmity abroad, and give an earnest of religious peace at home as well as to crush civil dissensions. It was not till his conversion to Catholicism drew the teeth of Spain and proved to the majority of his subjects that he desired above all things to be a national and not a party king, that he can be said really to have reigned. The Peace of Vervins concluded in 1598 marked the issue of France from the throes of her Reformation wars. Her religious struggle was over. Calvinism had made its great effort to win religious and political ascendancy in France, and had failed. France was to remain a Catholic country, and the Bull of absolution granted to Henry IV by Pope Clement VIII, In 1595, Julie emphasised the return of the most Christian king into the pale of Catholic obedience. But if Calvinism had failed, neither had Papalism wholly won the day. Catholic France had determined to be, but she was far from assuming as yet the mantle of the champion of rigid orthodoxy just laid down by Philip II. The same year which saw the death of Philip II and the real beginning of the reign of Henry IV saw also the promulgation of the Edict of Nantes. By this famous edict, religious toleration and political recognition was accorded to the French Calvinists, They were to be allowed to worship as they pleased, provided they paid tithes to the church and observed religious festivals like other Frenchmen. They were to receive a grant from the state in return. They were to be equally eligible with Catholics for all public offices. They were to be represented in the parliaments and were to have exclusive political control for eight years over certain towns in the south and west of France, of which the most important were Nismus, Montauban, and La Rochelle. Thus they obtained not merely toleration as a religious body, and part endowment by the state, but also recognition in certain places as a political organization. The political settlement was evidently but a palliative. The religious settlement was a cure. No country as patriotic as France, no government as strong as an absolute monarchy, could tolerate longer than was necessary an imperium in imperio, under the control of a religious sect. But the toleration of Calvinism in a country professedly Catholic was a solution of the religious question thoroughly acceptable to the genius of the French nation. It enabled France at once to fix her whole attention upon the absorbing business of political aggrandisement. It excused her somewhat for not thinking it obligatory to play a purely Catholic role in the pursuit of that aggrandisement. The first of those nations of Europe which had been seriously affected by the Reformation to arrive at a satisfactory solution of the problem of religious division. She was able to set an example to Europe of a policy entirely outside religious considerations. Under a king who had conformed, but had not been converted, France pacified, but not yet united, was ready to mix herself up in the web of political intrigue and religious rivalry in which Germany was helplessly struggling with the simple, if selfish, object of using the misfortunes of her neighbours for her own advantage. The state of Germany was indeed pitiable. The empire had become but the shadow of a great name. The successor of Augustus had nothing in common with his prototype but his title, Roman Emperor, he might be in the language of ceremony, punctiliously might the imperial hierarchy of dignity be ordered according to the solemnities of the Golden Bull. But all the world knew that in spite of this wealth of tradition and of prescription, the Emperor could wield little more power in German politics than that which he derived from his hereditary dominions. The Archduke of Austria must indeed be a figure in Germany under any circumstances, still more so if he happened to be also King of Hungary and King of Bohemia. But if the electors set the imperial crown at his feet and hailed him as Caesar, though much was thereby added to his dignity and sometimes to his legal rights, not one wit accrued to him of effective force. It is true that his legal position as head and judge over the princes accrued to him, not so much because he was emperor and the representative of Augustus and Charles the Great, as because he was German king and the successor of Henry the Fowler and Otto the Great. Nevertheless, the fact from whatever quarter derived, that the German constitution gave to the emperor, the lordship over the other princes and the right of deciding disputes which arose between them, made him the only possible centre of the German unity. The right was exercised through a court, the Reichskammergericht the members of which were mainly nominated by the princes themselves. For the purpose of ensuring the enforcement of its decrees, Germany was divided into circles in which the princes and the representatives of the cities who were members of the Diet met, and if necessary, raised troops to give effect to the sentences pronounced. Since the beginning of the Reformation, however, there had been a difficulty in getting this machinery to work, owing to the religion's dissensions, and the Emperor had begun the practice of referring Imperial questions, which had arisen to the Imperial or Orklik Council, which was entirely nominated by him and under his influence in all important matters of the administrative policy, the emperors, since the middle of the 15th century, had been obliged to consult the Diet, but the Diet was in no sense a representative assembly of the classes of which the nation was composed, as were the Parliament of England and the States-General of France, but it was merely a feudal assembly of the chief feudal vassals of the empire. It was, in fact, a congress of petty sovereigns, gathered under the suzerain. It was divided into three houses. The first consisted of six of the seven electors, three ecclesiastical, i.e. the archbishops of Kuln, Mines and Trier, and three lay the electors of Saxony and Brandenburg, and the elector Palpatine. For the fourth lay elector, the king of Bohemia, only appeared for an imperial election. The second was the House of Princes, the third that of the free imperial cities, but it was considered so inferior to the other houses that it was only permitted to discuss matters which had already received their assent. It is obvious that in an assembly so constituted the only interest powerfully represented was that of the princes, and the only influence likely to be exercised by it was in favour of that desire for complete independence. Which was natural to a body of rulers who already enjoyed most of the prerogatives of sovereignty. For there had ever been two divergent streams of tendency in German politics. Deep in the German heart lay a vague sense of nationality and patriotism, a dim desire that Germany should be one. This sentiment naturally centred around the emperor as the visible head of German unity. If Germans ever were to be politically one, it could be under the emperor. There was no other possible head among the seething mass of jarring interests known geographically as Germany. The other tendency had sprung from the strong love of local independence characteristic of the Teutonic race. Naturally, each petty duke or prince tried to become as independent of outside authority as he could, and in the pursuit of this policy, he found himself greatly aided by that spirit of local seclusion, which ever seeks to find its centre of patriotism in the side eddies of provincial life rather than in the broad stream of national existence. The emperors of the House of Hasburg had fully recognised these facts, and since the days of Maximilian I had set themselves resolutely to the task of rebuilding the imperial authority and making the imperial institutions the true and only centre of German unity, they might have succeeded had it not been for two events, the concurrent effect of which was completely to shatter the half-begun work. The first was the Reformation, the second was the long rivalry with France. The Reformation cut Germany rudely at first, into two afterwards, into three pieces, Lutheranism, which absorbed nearly all northern Germany between the Maine and the Baltic, drew its strength especially from the support of the North German princes. Luther himself effected a closer alliance with the princes and the nobles than he did with the people. It was to them he appealed for protection in the days of his earlier struggles. ...on them that he trustfully leaned in the later days of his power. Naturally, therefore, Lutheranism gave a strong impulse and sanction to the desire... ...which the northern princes uniformly felt... ...to assert their independence of a Catholic emperor. Calvinism spreading from Republican Switzerland... ...down the upper valley of the Rhine into the heart of Germany had no less fatal influence upon the centralizing policy of the emperors. Subversive in its tendencies and impatient of recognized authority, it intensified the spirit of dislike to autocratic institutions. Still in spite of the terrible disruption of Germany caused by reformation, a Sovereign so powerful and so cautious as Charles the Fourth might have been able to weather the storm without suffering any loss of prerogative or influence had it not been for the constant and paramount necessity laid upon him of counteracting the machinations of an enemy ever wakeful and absolutely unscrupulous and that concludes tonight's ratings. I hope you've enjoyed listening to this story, and I hope you're feeling a little drowsy. Until next time, good night.